All right. Page 7. 1 Peter 3, 7. Uh, let me uh, ask a personal favor of you. Uh, I've got the DVR set. I've got my phone on airplane mode, so I cannot get any updates. And um, if you have your phones on, and you are, while I'm preaching, looking at the score, I, will, I, I, I know this is crazy, but I will be trying to read the way you're looking at your phone <laughs> and pick up on whether it's a good sign or bad sign. So just during my sermon, if you could not, like, look at your phones. So I will not be thinking, I wonder if that's a good look or bad look. Um, I am going to somehow get home without, um, without finding out any of the score of this basketball game. We had a lot of your congregation with us this morning at, uh, at Rapid Run. Okay, let me preface this, okay? Um, I said last week that um, I divided 1 through 6, 3, 1 through 6, off of uh, verse 7, because um, what I said was that it wasn't um, necessarily talking about marriage um, as we come to think about it, we, we, we typically think of 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7 as a marriage passage. And what I said last week is that it, um, it's, it's less to do with marriage and more to do with um, what does a wife, a believing wife with an unbelieving spouse do? What do you do with that dynamic? That, that he's, he's shepherding them through that more so than um, being marriage advice. Though, of course, it did have implications for marriage. Um, this week, um, in verse 7, he actually does kind of switch focus to talk about marriage a little bit. And here's why I'm saying that. Because... Um, he basically, he's been going through this section on submission, and, and it ends with wives submitting to unbelieving spouses, but in almost an offhanded way, Peter essentially says, well, I know I do have some husbands in the church. It's not all just wives of unbelieving husbands. I know there are some husbands in the church, so I probably need to talk to them and help them see what this submission paradigm would look like for them in their marriages and in their homes. So he does kind of switch a little bit more toward marriage counsel here in the last verse, verse 7. And it will get into, and it's a term I'm going to go ahead and define up front uh, so I don't have to continually define it. It will get into um, a, a, a theological um, worldview called complementarianism, um, which is what um, we at TCPC uh, subscribe to, uh, the, the many churches nowadays don't. But complementarianism is the belief that within the sacred institutions of marriage and church, God has ordained, um, there, there is something to gender, there is something to gender roles that that matters to God, and that God has ordained this, what I call, uh, this dance of gender. These, um, the two are equal, but with complementing roles within the marriage home and within the church. And obviously, 
um, we're going to get into that tonight. So that's what I'm talking about when I talk about complementarianism, is that God does believe that there is a such thing as gender, gender roles, and that um, though equal, they complement each other perfectly. Um, so, uh, so that's my first. The second preface is, is that um, I'm recognizing, um, particularly with this with this crowd, um, that. Uh, I want you to listen to, obviously if you are in marriage, and particularly if you're a husband tonight, then obviously there's going to be just a lot of meaty application and, and, and points to take away from this. Uh, but I also recognize, um, although again, a lot, a lot of your congregation was with us this morning, but still I also recognize at this campus that um, there is a higher percentage of people who are not married um, at this campus. Um, and so I would just like for you, what you need to know is at the end of the sermon, I am going to come back and I'm going to make applications that, are, that go beyond marriage, um, which will be helpful. But I just would like for you um, to listen as, a, as, as um, future husbands, as future husbands to listen to this, and also um, as young ladies, as, um, as, as, as women, as you uh, consider husbands, as you consider potential husbands, um, that, that perhaps you would catch a vision for what you expect, dare I say, demand um, from a man someday. When you're looking for, what do I want in a spouse? I wonder if this would be at the top of the list. And men, as you're looking for, for a spouse, what, what, as, you're, as you're doing the dating game, I wonder if becoming this is at the top of your list. So there's a lot of marriage talk tonight is all I'm saying, but I will apply it more in the end. Okay, 1 Peter 3, 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. The word of the Lord. Help us, Lord, to focus on you and you alone. Um, Lord, uh, there are, <clears throat> like every week, there are distractions that bombard us, Lord. It doesn't have to be basketball games. It's, it's um, the cares and concerns of life. It's, it's um, going back to work tomorrow. It's class studies. It's uh, difficulties with spouses or friends. It's uh, loneliness as we come to a topic like marriage and the sting of that. It's, it's all of these burdens. So I pray, Lord, that you would meet us where we are in this and use this uh, one verse to convict and comfort us as you see fit. Uh, Lord, give me grace as the preacher. Um, I am here to before you, Father, and before your church to uh, boast in my weakness that your power may be perfect in that weakness, to boast that um, I am unqualified to preach a sermon on marriage when I'm just learning what it looks like to love my wife well, um, that, that I am made qualified to preach here, not because I've mastered this text, but because you have ordained me to preach this text. And that, that's what I trust in, the spirit ordination and unction of the prophetic ministry of, of pastorate. So I pray that... Only through that, your, your spirit would be at work um, this evening, and that I'd be faithful to your passage. In Jesus' name, amen. If you were here last week, um, I picked on Tim Keller a little bit because he, um, I went to his sermon database, 
and um, looked at all of all of his passages on First Peter, and he had preached on every passage in First Peter except for First Peter three one through seven, which I thought was a little chicken of him. But it's Tim Keller, so who am I to say? However, um, I do want to commend him this evening. Um, because of something that took place this week, which I thought was fascinating. Uh, many of you may have seen this. Uh, Princeton University, uh, which is our historical, uh, the Reformed Presbyterian world, that's, that's our historical institution in America. That's our greatest thinkers, theologians, American uh, theologians have all come out of there. Um, traditionally speaking, Princeton is just this bastion of Reformed Orthodoxy. Of course, it's not that anymore. However, um, Princeton uh, Seminary still, Princeton Theological Seminary, still awards every year. One of the highest awards that you can receive as a theologian is the Abraham Kuyper um, Excellence Award. Um, Abraham Kuyper, Kuyper is a theologian, a Dutch theologian who came and delivered lectures at Princeton, uh, the Stone Lectures at Princeton, lectures on Calvinism, uh, which I commend to you. Um, they were um, they were epic. They were they were thought changing for the course of American uh, theology. But anyway, Abraham Kuyper came and gave these lecture series. And since then, uh, Princeton has hosted the Kuiper Lecture Series and has given the Abraham Kuiper uh, Theological Award. And this year, um, it was announced that Tim Keller was going to be the recipient of that. Um, he was going to give the lectures, and he was going to receive the award for theological excellence. Very, very high honor in the uh, nerdy theology world. Well, um, as you might imagine, um, the uh, student body and faculty of Princeton uh, went crazy when it was announced that Tim Keller was going to receive this award. And, um, and the institution ended up bowing down to uh, the uproar and uh, this week decided to, um, decided to strip him of the award that they were going to give him. Um, and, and when you look at the communications from Princeton about this publicly, and you look at the social media stuff from the students and the blogs from the students and all this stuff, um, it's very obvious why they did it. The, the, um, the LGBTQ thing was a, a part of it, but honestly it wasn't the major part of it. The, his views on sexuality and sexual ethics was not a major part of it. They could not believe that a man ordained in the PCA, which is our denomination, the Presbyterian Church of America, a man ordained in the PCA was going to receive an award like this because specifically the PCA um, is one of the few remaining denominations that does not ordain women to the office of elder and pastor and who still preaches complementarianism within the home, like I spoke of, that there are roles and that the that the that God has ordained the head the man as the head of the home, and uh, and for women to uh, submit to headship and all of this, and um, they could not believe that Princeton was going to be giving an award to a man who believed in these things, and Princeton took away the award. Now there was uproar, and everybody was mad, and evangelicals were up in arms, and all this stuff, and people were shocked. But honestly, I wasn't surprised in the least. Um, because what I'm talking about tonight, um, our world simply has no category for anymore. Um, this, this stuff, the gender, 
the complementarian theology, the female, um, the female roles in marriage and in church, all that stuff. This is without a doubt surpassed any other uh, controversial things that we in the PCA believe. There was a time when the questions I got more often had to do with predestination and infant baptism, and of course we still get those questions. But this one by far has become the thing that um, people cannot believe we actually believe. And certainly someone like Tim Keller ministering in the most uh, secular progressive culture in the world, downtown Manhattan, how, how could he believe something so archaic? And perhaps you're thinking that as well. However, um, what I want to challenge you with and what I, th I think the scriptures will do tonight is this. Complementarianism, rightly understood, and that's very important. I often tell people, uh, tell me what you believe about complementarianism, because I, I, I probably disagree with it too. Complementarianism, rightly understood and applied, becomes the most beautiful picture of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The most tangible expression of Jesus on earth. It is a beautiful thing, and quite honestly, I think it is what our world is dying to see from the church, whether they know it or not. And that is what emerges from this one verse this evening. The beauty of what I'm calling submissive leadership. This verse is to the men. This verse is to the husbands. It will challenge the wives but the wives were challenged last week. This, this one is for the men. And what does it look like to live out submission as a leader? I've divided it two ways. Submissive leadership defined and submissive leadership defended. Let's first define it. Likewise, husbands. That one word, likewise, was in itself a very severe cultural offense to them because it, what it does, it harkens back to the call to submit. When he says likewise, he means he's carrying on where we've been, which was scandalous to them. We are still in this section on submission that began in 2.13 where Peter says to be subject to every human authority. And from there, we have been following along with Peter's repeated refrain, be subject, be subject, be subject. Three times he said it, be subject, which introduces a new section of submission. Now here, we don't have an explicit husbands, be subject to your wives, and that certainly is intentional. Um, because to do so would compromise the, the doctrine of male headship, which the apostles were very committed to within the covenant of marriage. But we do have the word likewise, which is scandalous. He's talking about wives submitting, and then he says likewise husbands, which does continue the theme of submission. So although Peter doesn't go as far as saying husbands be subject to your wives... He nevertheless does still have in mind some form of submission. What he does here is strike a balance that depending upon where you are coming from is going to press in on your prejudices and make you uncomfortable. What I mean by that is contrary to the culture of our day, Peter still here does view, does view husbands as the head and leader of the home. However, contrary to the culture of that day, 
and speaking candidly, the culture of some of the more extreme fundamentalist strands of evangelicalism, which feel more like the, the, the patriotic cultures of, of before. Um, if Peter calls husbands into a form of submission to their wives. So unlike our culture, he does still view them as heads. Unlike their culture, he is calling into a form of submission. So what is this view of submission that doesn't compromise headship? Well, what emerges from our verse is a vision of submissive leadership, what I'm calling protective submission. And he defines it this way. Likewise, husbands, not be subject to your wives, but he, but he, he phrases it this way. Live with your wives in an understanding way. Now, the full meaning of the Greek there is really lost in translation. When he says, live with your wives in an understanding way, that seems to communicate kind of a baseline tolerance of your wife. Like, look, guys, I know she's tough, but you're going to have to live with it. it. That's not at all what he's saying there. In actuality, Peter is calling on husbands to do something radical here, unheard of here, totally countercultural here. He's calling on husbands to pursue a deep knowledge, gnosis in the Greek, of their wives. Meaning he's calling on husbands to know their wives. Their personality, their needs, their wants, their longings, their desires. This was radically countercultural because to them, wives were not something to get to know. <laughs> wives were property in the worst sense. And wives were useful, perhaps, in the best sense. But they certainly weren't somebody to get to know. But when Peter says, live with your wife in a knowledgeable way, in a knowing way, he is saying far more than just don't mistreat your wife or put up with your wife. He is saying, live your life, live with your wives, live your life serving your wife according to her unique, your unique needs that you are aware of that you've gotten to know. Now, just a moment of premature application here at the beginning because I can't help it. I would just ask this. Husbands, do you know your wives? I know you don't view her as property like this context, but if you do the disengaged, coexisting, non-pursuit thing, then you're treating her as such. You're treating her as someone who isn't worthy of you to get to know. Don't be so quick to say, of course I know my wife. She's my wife. Counseled a lot of couples who don't know each other. Abby and I have been married 10 years. And I would say it's only been the past five years that I've truly started to get to know my wife to my own shame. I would say that. And it, uh, it took marriage counseling for me to start seeing that. There goes that stigma, right? You're allowed to do that. If your preacher does. Marsh has done it too. Justin. I'll start calling people out, JD. They, I mean, we've all done it. It took marriage counseling for me to start getting to know my wife. I'm so ashamed to say. Do you know your wife? Her unique story that leads to her unique fears, insecurities, longings, struggles, 
Do you know what it looks like to love and serve her according to that unique knowledge of her? Because she's longing to be known. Even if she's keeping you at a distance, which wives are good at. She's longing to be known. In fact, she wants you to get to know why she's keeping you at a distance. She wants to be known and to be loved according to that knowledge. So these words from Peter are an affront to the disengaged, coexisting, I just provide and not mistreat my wife type of husband. But here, there is even more to Peter's vision of submissive leadership. Continue on. Likewise, husbands, live your life in a knowledge of, knowledgeable way of your wife than this. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. So let's just deal with the weaker vessel, shall we? What is that? Why is that in my Bible? Um, complementarians are uh, people who subscribe to this theology are notorious for abusing this verse by claiming women. It means like women are more erratic, emotional, prone to giving in to temptation and crazy applications like this. That is not what it's talking about here. Um, the uniquely, in fact, I would say this, the uniquely emotive or emotional quality that we do typically find in the female gender um, is to be viewed as a strength, not a weakness. Please don't say that that's like, that that's bad. That's beautiful. It's, it's not weak. It's, it's beautiful. So don't make we weaker vessels say something it's not. It's just saying what it's obviously saying. I know you don't like the way he phrases it. I know you don't wish he was using uh, first century language, but the word vessel, it, it, it just, in, in the Greek, to just to give a really rough translation, just means body. It's more specifically, it would be the instrument that, that, is, that houses the soul. It's the body. This is just Peter acknowledging the obvious. Women are physically weaker than men. That's it. And it's true. I've mean, gotten into CrossFit. Probably time for me to confess that to the church. <laughs> and, uh, and in our class, we go in every day, and, uh, and we have the same workout, WAD. We have the same workout of the day. Mm -hmm. Men and... Uh, Men and women do the same workout. However, the workouts are scaled differently for each. Men use more weight than women, with one noticeable exception, your pastor who has to do the women's workout, <laughs> which is humiliating. Um, but so as a general rule, as a general rule, with the exception of your pastor, uh, even the most radical feminist just has to admit that we're just talking physically here, okay? Let's not go anywhere else. We're just talking physically here that the vessels of women are weaker than men. But here's the point. It is this physical weakness that has been exploited throughout human history to oppress women in every culture, which is what God told us would happen. One of the saddest consequences of the fall in Genesis 3 is that God looks at woman and said, he is going to rule over you. Again, crazy conservative complementarians think that that's marriage advice. That's not marriage advice. That's the fall. Is that your longing will be for him and he will rule you. And that has been the history of the female gender in every culture. 
It's a devastating consequence of sin where male power is now used not for the promotion of females, but the exploitation of females. That the power that God, beautiful power that God gave to men was not, but was originally designed to exalt the female is now used to oppress the female. So weaker vessel is not saying anything more than the obvious. One commentator, I love one commentator, chooses to translate it as the more vulnerable sex. And that's it. That's the more vulnerable gender in the sense of the more easily mistreated, oppressed, exploited gender. Now, back to the meaning of the verse. Peter, again, strikes a balance. Hey, little wild woman. Peter, again, strikes a balance that is a challenge for both our culture and theirs. Contrary to our culture, Peter does not deny the power that men have over women. He's just being honest with it. However, contrary to their culture, Peter calls upon men to use that power not to oppress women, but to exalt the weaker vessel. And I do mean exalt. It says, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. It's tough to convey how extreme that language is. This is the only place that phrase shows up in the New Testament. However, it was a common expression in the ancient world, and it was reserved for um, showing honor to the most honorable in society, in this uh, culture that loved the family. This is the expression that was used towards grandparents, toward the older generation of honoring in word and indeed the older generation. And this was even used toward Caesar. So here's what Peter has done. He takes language reserved for the highest honor, showing honor, and applies it to those, culturally speaking, who receive the least honor. And I do mean he has in mind honor here. The phrase is unique to the New Testament, but the Greek word here for honor, he has already used it. He used it back in chapter 2, verse 7, where he talks about the honor given by God to those who believe in Jesus. That's a high honor. And now he is saying, husbands, honor your wives like that. I like to say that within the complementarian vision of marriage, the husband is the authority and the wife is the glory. And that's exactly what Peter is saying here. He doesn't deny the power and authority of the husband as our culture wants him to do, nor does he exploit the power and authority of the husband as the ancient culture would want him to do. Instead, Peter demands subversive power and authority. He redefines authority so that it is used now for the honor and glory of the wife. He takes the power of husbands and applies to it the submissive paradigm that we've been studying. What does it look like for those in authority to submit? And it's to use their authority to honor the weaker vessel. So, Peter's counsel to husbands is still submission. It's a different kind, but it is. It takes the form of submissive leadership, or as I like to say, protective submission. But Peter doesn't just make this radical claim. He feels the need to defend it, and I, I kind of do too. <laughs> Having seen submissive leadership defined, let's consider now submissive leadership defended. What Peter does here is he defends his command in two ways. Two reasons for submissive leadership. One theological, one practical. 
The theological one is seen there first where he says, since, so we know he's defending it, do this, since they are heirs with you of grace of life. He is referencing a revolutionary theological concept introduced by the gospel. As I said last week, in the ancient world, both pagan and Greco-Roman world, as well as the religious Jewish world, the husband, as the head of the household, was the only important religious opinion. The wife in the household adopted his religion, worshipped his God, or in, in the Roman world, his gods. And then comes the gospel with this radical call on women to believe regardless, or even, I said last week, in defiance of the husband's religious choice. And women themselves receive the initiation rite of baptism. Rather than their husbands being baptized on behalf of the household, women were being baptized. And the reason for this is that the gospel views women as, to quote here, equal heirs or co-heirs with men in the grace of eternal life. All it's saying there is that women get to be saved by their own faith alone. That they are co-heirs with you. That what we take so for granted, the John 3.16 gospel fundamentals, he's saying women get that too. Now that, I, you would say, of course, but to them, that's crazy. He is saying you are co-heirs with women in the grace of eternal life. Now, in reminding husbands of this theological truth, he intends to motivate them to honor their wives as a weaker vessel. But it feels at first to be counterproductive. In other words, wouldn't equality lead husbands to deny their authority and leadership? Wouldn't, would, if Peter's trying to get them to see that you are co-heirs, you all are exactly equal in the gospel of Jesus Christ then wouldn't that mean the implication be, therefore, lay aside your authority and your power and your leadership? Well, here's their, here, let me put it this way. There are two ways to achieve equality. The first is a reductionist move that does away with all differences and roles. There are no roles when it comes to gender. There are no differences when it comes to gender. That's the modern solution, obviously. Equality is found by stripping away any differences, certainly any roles. This would be akin to the way to racial equality is through colorblindness, which seems right on the surface, but if you ask people of color, the whole notion of colorblindness is incredibly insulting to them. They don't want you to ignore the uniqueness and beauty of their ethnicity and culture. They want you to celebrate it and honor it and even learn from it. So in the end, oversimplification leads to equality only by domesticating equality. Can I say that again? When you're talking about equality, whether it be gender or races or whatever, oversimplification, stripping of it of its uniqueness, leads to equality, but only by watering down equality, which is why the Bible never makes that move. What Peter is arguing is that there is another way to fight for equality without compromising the beauty and complexity of gender, and it is the way of submission. That's the key. What if you recognize the differences, but the differences are leveraged for the other? And in this way, equality is both preserved and promoted. Promoted. 
This is exactly how our triune God accomplished the incarnation without compromising the eternal truth of equality within the Godhead. In the incarnation, Jesus delights to submit to the Father's will, and the Father delights to exalt Jesus. They did not do away with their uniqueness. Their uniqueness is maintained. Their roles are maintained. But here's the point. If either refused their role, then equality would be compromised. Or put it this way. If Jesus was threatened by the idea of submission and refused to submit, I'm too good to submit to the Father. Well, then he would be making a statement that he's better than the Father. Likewise, if the Father was threatened by the idea of exalting the Son and giving Him the name that is above every name, that making all of history all about the glory of the Son, if He thought, I'm above that, I don't want Him to have all the glory, and refused to honor Him, then He would be making a statement that He's better than the Son. However, the Son delights to submit, and the Father delights to honor, and in this way, uniqueness and equality are celebrated. So Peter is saying, you have to honor your wife if you want to maintain the theological truth that she is an equal co-heir of grace. Because if you fail to do this, if you lord over her, if you do not submit and honor and love her, then it is reinforcing the lie that you're the only important one in this arrangement. So the first is a theological reason. It's this... This, this unique gospel identity of equality within the genders. The second reason is more pragmatic. So that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, that seems like a strange thing to point to, doesn't it? Here's, here's what's going on here. Again, in the ancient world, both Roman and Jewish, the husband was the only religious figure that mattered. What that meant was the husband, the father, was the only person who had access to God in prayer, or gods, whatever religion they believed. Because of this, the man's chief role was to pray for the family. Only God heard his prayers. Therefore, it was on him to pray for protection and blessing of the family. Well, in a brilliant move here, Peter doesn't negate the importance of a husband praying for his home, and he certainly doesn't shame the noble instinct of a husband to be the protector of his home. Instead, he warns the husband that he might be harming his home without knowing it. Because God will not hear his prayers nor bless his home if his wife is not being honored. Peter is drawing on a lesson that he learned repeatedly from Jesus. That our relationship with God, our vertical relationship with God, is deeply impacted by our horizontal relationship with others. That we cannot expect communion with God while harboring divisiveness with others. Don't expect God to hear and answer your prayers if you are not loving your wife, brothers. Or to put it positively, maybe I'll put it positively. Do you want to protect your home? I know you do. Do you want to see God bless your family? I know you do. Do you want the enemy far from your household? Of course, I know you do. I know all of these things are in you. I know you pray for these things. Well, then honor your wife, that your prayer for such things will be heard. So the theological reason for submissive leadership, maintain the doctrinal truth of equality between male and female. Practical reason for submissive leadership, 
protect and bless your home. Now, let's do application. I want to do it like I did last week, okay? Uh, the most obvious direct application to husbands, then broaden the principle out to all of us because I think there is a principle here for us to see. But first, let's not gloss over it. So this is to husbands um, and to men here who um, want to one day be a husband. Um, this concept of submissive protection is taking two things now off the table for you. The abuse of power and the neglect of power. When Peter says, take authority and power and use it, subversive power and authority, serve with it, what he's done is he's taking off the table abuse of power and neglect of power. Now, abuse is obvious. This is, it's, it's straightforward. To, to, uh, to care and honor your wife as uh, the, as the, um, as the weaker vessel, more vulnerable sex, obviously means abuse is off the table. So, could not be more direct application. If you are abusing your wife, physically, verbally, emotionally, or sexually, if you are exploiting your power over her as the weaker vessel, then you need to repent immediately. I mean tonight. You need to confess your sins to the church immediately. This happened after one of our services this morning. You need to let us help you immediately. It needs to stop tonight. And by way of church discipline warning, um, you do need to be warned as a minister in his name that if you refuse to confess and if you refuse to repent, if you will not stop and you will not get help, then you are bearing witness that you are not a Christian and the wrath of Almighty God is waiting for you for what you're doing to her. You will pay. Do not, do not trifle with God who loves your wife. So, straightforward as could be, you cannot abuse your power. The other application is less obvious, and, and, uh, but very important and very applicable to all of us husbands and future husbands. If you're not a husband yet, trust me, you're going to be terrible at this. <laughs> it's not the abuse of power, it's neglecting the power. It was not the abuse of Adam that led to the fall, it was the neglect of Adam that led to the fall. In your Old Testament reading, there's a subtlety that I wonder if you picked up on. Have you ever wondered why Eve was the one who ate the fruit and yet the rest of the scriptures blame Adam? Now that gets into complementarianism, that gets into headship. If your family, your marriage, your house has problems, sorry dude, it's your fault. Welcome to leadership. But why is Adam blamed? In Adam we die. We need a second Adam. All of this, Adam's fault, Adam's fault. Well, in the text it says, it says this. Um, it, it says, uh, when the woman saw that the fruit was pleasing to the eyes and able to make one wise, she ate. 
And she gave also to husband who was with her, and he ate. He was right there. He was right there while his wife's being tempted, while his wife is failing, and he's cowardly silent. It was the neglect of Adam, the failure of Adam, or as Larry Crabb says, the silence of Adam that ruined the world. And oh, how we husbands can relate to the cowardice disengagement. If you are not leading your home, if you are not pursuing your wife to know her as this verse calls you to do, if you are not the chief repenter of your home where you repent first before you ever ask her to repent, where you repent before you ever ask your children to repent, if she is not the honor and glory of your marriage, if you are not living to know her uniquely and serve her accordingly, if you are just doing, and believe me, I understand the temptation, the I'm insecure about my ability to lead, I'm threatened by her strength and glory, and it's just easier to disengage and sit on the couch. If that is you, then don't tell me you're providing for your family. You're not. You are failing. Oh, the epidemic of modern Christianity where wives are utterly alone in their marriages. And they are dying for their husbands to just engage. Not to mention lead, just engage. Do not, brothers, do not hide behind the fact that you are providing for the family as if all the family needs is your career and money. They don't need your money, they need you. Again, I know you don't know how to do it. I don't either. We're learning this. All, all, all of us husbands here at TCPC are learning this together. But admit that and let us help you. And wives, may I say this to you once again. I think I've done this now three times in this series. Just invite you to take this to the church. If you are, to say this, you are not alone, even if, it, even if you feel alone. If you feel stuck in this, please have the courage to bring it to the church. Certainly, if there's an abuse of power, you need to do that immediately. But also, if there's a neglect of power, if you feel completely alone in marriage and don't know what to do, bring it to us. The beauty of the church is that you have an even higher authority over your life, an authority that both you and your husband have submitted to. That's, that's, that's why it's different this week. Last week, we were wives married to unbelieving spouses who don't give a rip about the church. This week, we're talking to husbands who, at, at, at least in name, call themselves Christian and come to church and submit themselves in membership vows to the church, which means you, wife, have a higher authority that both you and your husband have chosen to submit to. So bring your mess to the authority of Christ's church and let that authority help you. And ladies... Please marry a Christian. Please marry a man who will take the vows with you so that when you get stuck, you both have submitted to an authority that can help. All right. Off of marriage is speaking to all of us. I think the passage is speaking to a broader application here as well. Peter has advised us to relate to the civil government with submission. 
Peter has advised us to relate to those who hurt us most deeply to, by submission. Peter has advised us to relate to those most intimate relationships in our lives that are unbelieving with submission. But then he closes his whole section on submission with a different scenario. It, it kind of changes things. He's been talking about exiles submitting to those powers above us. Well, what about when we are in the social seat of power? That's actually still very applicable to our context. Granted, we are moving further and further into an exilic status, yet there is still mu so much power, influence, and authority in the church today. What are Christians called to do with that? What are Christians called to do with our affluence, our resources, our power, our leadership, our positions in the community? What are we to do with our power? His answer there is the same. Submit. What are you doing with your power, your influence, your resources, your privilege, your prosperity? And everyone here has it to some degree. Are you using it for self-promotion and exploiting it for your own gain? That would be akin to a, wife, to a husband using his power to exploit his wife. Or are you leveraging it for the weaker vessels of society? And man, the applications could go on and on and on and on and on. I'll give you a few I thought of. I think of the unborn, the most vulnerable of our society with no voice, who are regularly being terminated. Anytime you talk about abortion in a sermon, um, it is very important to make the caveat that I know and recognize that there are, um, there are ladies here, probably, in the room this size, there are ladies here um, haunted by the shame and guilt of that decision. Um, you need to know there is hope, there is forgiveness. We'd love to help you with that. So that, is, that qualification side, I, I come back to this. What powerful and affluent Christians are you going to do with this epidemic of the most vulnerable among us being exploited in the name of convenience? I think of the poor. The vulnerable demographic that politicians are exploiting, that greedy people are exploiting, that everyone seems to be exploiting and nobody seems to be helping in any meaningful way. We can sit around and talk all day long about how uh, the government is failing the poor, but what powerful and affluent Christians are you doing about it? How are you leveraging your power, your authority, your resources for the good of the poor, the weaker vessels of society? I think of minorities, those existing within a dominant culture, I wrote an op-ed in the Herald-Leader calling for subversive privilege. Don't deny your cultural privilege. Don't feel guilty about your cultural privilege. Instead, leverage cultural privilege for the underprivileged. I think of this neighborhood, this city. Uh, you, know, you know what will make... You know what they say about churches like this, right? Um, sociologists and theologians, they're very critical. They can be very critical of churches like this, and you know why, right? It's just the, the, the rich, white yuppies moving into downtown, and, and their church is joining the wave of gentrification. 
Um, do you know how to make sure that you're not exploiting downtown, the cool part of Lexington? Do you know how to make sure that you're not just coming in here and doing your takeover power thing like the rest of people are doing by exploiting and gentrification and all stuff? Is that this church doesn't come down to consume, but this church comes down to serve. What will make this church not the stereotypical um, white, cool, hipster, we come in and take over the building and own the place church is if your posture is one of we are here to serve the poor, to leverage our resources for the good of this neighborhood around us. And yes, I do think of women as well. Though we pride ourselves in being this empowering, liberating society, we are fooling ourselves, people. Um, I think of the date, rape, culture, the rape culture on college campuses that is more alive and well than ever before. Men, now we're getting, now we're not just on husbands. Young men, um, the power that you can exert, manipulative or physical coercion over women to exploit them and their bodies. I think of uh, sex trafficking industry, which is booming more than ever before because it is having to feed the unstoppable market and demand of internet pornography. The insatiable lust of our perverted culture. Where is the reality of females as the weaker vessel? Or where is the reality of females as the more vulnerable gender seen more clearly in the Western world than in pornography industry? That is absolutely preying on young women, exploiting them for the gain of our lust. And every click is a resounding amen to their exploitation and oppression. What are you going to do about women suffering, exploited, oppressed in our culture? I could go on and on with the applications, but but all I'm asking is broadening this out. What do you do with power and influence? If you want to be a follower of Jesus, then you're not allowed to hold on to it, and you're not allowed to exploit it. You have to use it. You have to leverage it. You have to subscribe to subversive submission leadership. Last week I said that if you have a problem with a humble, gentle spirit of submission, then don't voice that to Jesus because that's what He's known for. This week, I will say that if you have a problem with laying aside power and authority to serve others that you could otherwise rule over, then don't voice that to Jesus as well, because that's Him too. What is He if not a servant to those who call Him Lord? Jesus submits Himself to the Father's leadership and will, so He submits Himself to a higher authority, and Jesus submits Himself to the church of which He is the head, to the lower authority. He submits to authority, and he submits to those he has authority over. He just does submission. And both of these are expressed, back to marriage and closing this way, and both of these are expressed in the beauty of marriage. The fullness of Christ in all of his submissive ways is seen in the mutual submission of gender roles in marriage. I began with Kel Tim Keller. Let me, let, me, uh, let me close with his wife. I thought that would be fitting for this sermon. Um, you probably don't know of Kathy Keller. 
uh, but she is by far the smartest of the two. Um, Tim Keller graduated second at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Kathy Keller graduated first. She was pen pals. As a, young, as a young girl, she was pen pals with C.S. Lewis. True story. Her and C.S. Lewis, just writing back and forth. Why not? And yet, Kathy Keller, more so than her husband, honestly, is fiercely complementarian and outspoken about it. She's co-authored many books with Keller, but she has written one book herself, which she says that she believes she is uniquely qualified to write. It's entitled, Jesus, Justice, and Gender Roles. I want to read from that, I read a passage from that that sums up all of this talk on submission. <clears throat> he says, that she says, not he says, that was an unfortunate slip for this sermon. <laughs> she says, this is where Jesus comes in. Jesus is the reason you can trust that God's justice is behind your assigned gender. Whether you are a man who would rather not take leadership or assume risk. Boy, does that nail us, right? A man who would not want to take leadership or assume the risk. Or a woman who wishes she could. Both get to play the Jesus role. It takes both men and women living out their gender roles in the safety of home and church to reveal to this world the fullness of the person of Jesus Christ. It takes both men and women submitting themselves because that's who our Savior is. He submits to a higher authority. He submits to those He has authority over. All He does is submit. Which is why Peter says to these exiles in this section we've been in now for a month and a half, before anything else, you are a people of submission because before anything else, your Savior is a Savior of submission. Let me pray. Lord, as we come now to your table of submission to celebrate what you have done, I pray that you would uh, bless us and help us to submit rightly to you your ways, your calling. Forgive us, Lord, for our own autonomy and self-righteousness. And we now return in humble submission to you and to each other. Teach us the ways by filling us with this sacrament which celebrates your ways. In Jesus' name, amen.